In this episode of the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast, I will be responding to various points made in a video produced by Creation Ministries International of a one-hour presentation titled ATP Synthase, the World's Smallest Motor by Professor Steve Taylor from the University of Liverpool. I won't be responding to every single statement made, only selected points that I personally felt warranted a response. And I won't be talking specifically about ATP synthase in any fine detail. This topic is well beyond my comprehension. What I will be mostly responding to are the misrepresentations of atheism, of philosophy, of the philosophy of science, and especially about the anti-intellectual rhetoric that six-day creationism is famous for. The maxim that no evidence against the Bible is valid simply because it's against the Bible. Creationists don't say contrary evidence isn't valid because that's not where the evidence leads. No, the evidence is invalid because it violates personal presupposed doctrine. While it is disappointing that there are still people who think theology and faith are the best way of attaining knowledge about the natural world, what is most disappointing is that this particular talk is being given by a professor of a reputable university. Now, he isn't doing this presentation as a representative of his university, and he is doing it as a private citizen. So I'm not accusing him of any wrongdoing. What he does in his free time away from his university is his business. However, the fact that he is saying all of this at a religious seminar and not at a scientific conference, or even in a debate where his assertions can be challenged, is most telling of all. I also need to apologize in advance for the sound quality. I recorded these responses in separate sessions using separate audio settings and in different environments. So if it seems uneven in places, please forgive me. Anyway, on to Victim of Illusion to introduce the show. I'm Deborah Grace, author of the book Crucifying the Bible, available on Amazon, and you're listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Ad Podcast. We are Victim of Illusion. You are listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad Podcast. And the next 30 seconds are brought to you by our album Invisible Light, available at our Bandcamp website. So far from lies and hypocrisy, returns to energy and silence becomes brief. I don't believe that. There has to be a mind behind all that we see around us. And although at that time I didn't admit it to him, atheism was gone at that point. You realize that there must be a great mind behind the universe, and there is. Spoken like a true cult member, he's trying desperately to philosophically shoehorn in God when no scientific room exists. If Professor Taylor said that exact phrase at a scientific conference, he will be laughed out of the room. And what he is saying has no actual scientific backing. While a number of astrophysicists and professionals in quantum mechanics and astrophysics do identify as Christians or theists, or even religious in general, there is no solid scientific reason to attribute sentient intelligence behind the creation of our universe. They may use terms like creator or supernatural poetically, but not academically. As the Kitzmiller versus Dover judgment said, the plausibility for intelligent design rests upon the extent 
to which the person believes in God. And if that's what the proposition rests on, it's not a very strong proposition. And secondly, for a mind to exist, there has to be matter to run the mind. If you're saying there is a mind before the matter, it leads to believing there exists either a. a floating disembodied mind that has never been observed, or b. this mind exists outside of our universe based on matter that exists outside of our universe. And as a young person, I remember just understanding two things, that Christ was on the outside of my life, but I did want him to be on the inside. And at the end of an evening questioning, I said that the prayer just to invite the Lord Jesus Christ who was standing at the door and knocking to come and enter my life. And I became a Christian like that. Most Christian conversions take place during the teenage years, a known time of emotional vulnerability and instability. For whatever reason, most conversions to Christianity take place before the age of 20, before the age of maturity and reason kicks in, whereas only roughly 4% of conversions take place after the age of 30. Why would that be? Almost the very next day, the issue came into my mind, but what about Adam and Eve? What about Genesis? What about the creation questions? You see, because even as a 16-year-old at school, being interested in science, that was what we were taught. And to me, it was a big problem. I remember it distinctly as a young Christian, only a few days in as a Christian. Of course, 1972, it's a long way back, and there were no uh, creation resources that many people knew about in those days, though the, the movement was just beginning. Um, I remember just thinking to myself, well, I don't understand all the answers, Lord, but I do want to trust you as my saviour. And I just put the matter to bed and just sort of trusted God at that time. I remember just thinking to myself, well, I don't understand all the answers, Lord, but I do want to trust you as my saviour. And I just put the matter to bed and just sort of trusted God at that time. And I think that's what we must do when we do get perplexing issues that come into our life. We don't know all the answers, do we? but we are called to trust the Lord anyway. He is the sovereign God. Simply trusting and waiting for an answer seems antithetical to intellectual honesty. God may give you an answer, but one, how do you know it is actually God giving you that answer? Two, would you be willing to question that answer that you believe God gave you? And three, what if it turned out that the answer was incorrect? I was on a mission. I was on a beach mission, another uh, life-changing decision to go on uh, a mission camp as a young person. And a chap on the team there with me, he was at Oxford University uh, studying medicine. He had four straight A's. His name was Steve. Really bright guy, Steve Moore. Now with the Lord. Um, and I asked him, I said, Steve, how do you reconcile the Bible with, um, uh, with science and all that we're taught? He said, ah, oh, I said, that's easy, he says. Have you ever looked at the evidence against evolution? I said, is there any evidence against evolution? I've never heard any. Sure, there is, he says. And he pointed me in the direction of the Genesis flood. Easy. Have you ever looked at the evidence against evolution? No evidence against evolution has been able to withstand rational scrutiny once all the relevant research has been factored in. Yes, evidence against evolution may stand, but only if you make no concerted effort to look deeper into the topic. The Genesis Flood is evidence against evolution? How? You can't even prove the Genesis Flood happened. Now. His smart friend may be smart, but studying medicine is not the same as studying the mechanics of biology and genetic replication. So then I began to look into this, and the more I looked into it, the more I realised that actually the facts of science are on the side of the Bible every time. Only if you go to an extremely concerted effort to remove and ignore all the data that goes against your assumed conclusion. Besides, 
Since the mid-1970s, a lot more scientific data has been gathered that narrows the gap God can fit into. Evolution, geology, cosmology, morality, archaeology, creationist fundamentalism is losing every battle. When I went down to London University to study, we, um, a group of us used to go along to Speaker's Corner. Anyone ever been to Speaker's Corner? Opportunity there to speak in the open air, and particularly as a young student, uh, keen Christian with others alongside, it was great to go down there. I never found a single question that didn't have a biblical answer. Again, you will only reach this by both using a very narrow interpretation of the Bible, as well as by ignoring everything outside the Bible. Besides, having a biblical answer doesn't make it the correct one. Now, that doesn't mean I had all the answers. Sometimes I had to say, sir, I don't know the answer to your question, but if you're here next week, and every time I was able to check it out and find it, or someone would knew, or someone was on the team, most of the questions people ask in the open air are very, very easy. Occasionally, it's a difficult one. But you know, for all of those questions that the world asked, there's always answers. Never been able to find. Uh, there was one that, that, that beat us or, or got past us or in every way. Easy for you to say. Hard for you to prove. And often I say, uh, speaking to audiences, particularly in the open air, can anyone produce just one fact, a fact, not an opinion, one fact that goes against the Bible? I've never had one come back to me so far. Yes, the existence of cosmic objects that are 13 billion light years away defeats the notion of a six-day creation event without violating either the first law of thermodynamics or special relativity. The existence of basal forms of modern creatures that exist only in the lower layers of geologic strata. A clear chain of evolutionary intermediates between Homo sapiens, Australopithecus afarensis, and Sailanthropus chidensis, indicating common ancestry and evolution by common descent. Furthermore, Homo sapiens are never found in the layers where the Sailanthropus are, and Sailanthropus are never found where the Homo sapiens are. And I'll throw in one more. The fact that intercessory prayer has not been shown to work beyond that of random chance. Have you ever heard the following? Scientists don't believe in God. Have you ever heard that? Plenty of scientists, both past and present, believe in God. Numerous Nobel Prize science winners have been Jewish, Catholic, or Protestants. Even supporters of intelligent design have won Nobel Prizes. Anyone who says scientists don't believe in God are engaging in polemics, not reasoned discussion. But there are two salient points here. One, after receiving tertiary education, most people see little to no need to accommodate a creationist view of natural science. And two, no six-day creationists have won Nobel Prizes with any discoveries that have explicitly supported the case for a six-day creation hypothesis. How about this one? Science has got all the answers to man's questions. Have you ever heard that one? Science is gonna tell us all the answers, only a matter of time before science works it all out. It's not so much that science has the answers, but it is that science, both the investigative tool and the body of knowledge, gives us the best information to base our answers on, and we should use the best available information to make the best decisions and arrive at the best conclusions. This is why no one solves murder cases using ancient scriptures. And of course, what about this one? Science is based on evidence, but Christianity is based on faith. Have you ever heard that one? This is entirely correct. Firstly, almost every theist, both Christian and non-Christian, I've ever come across states that it takes a degree of faith to be engaged as a theist. And second, the whole point of science is that we gain knowledge and to the highest degree possible by both investigating the natural world and by challenging the investigations. This is because in science, challenge is welcomed and necessary, but in religion, 
challenge inevitably leads to social ostracization. In the UK, situation's worse than here, I think, in that the um, from uh, uh, primary school that is five years old upwards, the children, it's mandated that they are taught evolution. And the one thing that they're not allowed to be taught is creation. Isn't that amazing? Thank goodness for that. Would you want your children being taught something that is unscientific as part of the science curriculum? Anyone who has studied the United States legal landscape on this topic should already know why this is. Because creationism is not science and evolution is. Kitzmiller versus Dover helped put that one to bed. Now the point is this, Faraday and Maxwell were both Bible-believing Christians. And uh, let me give you a third. Um, anyone recognize that device? That is in fact a diode. That was the original diode that was invented by Fleming. Now Fleming was the first professor of electrical engineering and electronics in the UK. No one argues for a second that being a Christian automatically precludes you from being able to contribute to the body of knowledge that drives our discoveries. But if correct theology were a prerequisite to the proper application of the scientific method, it would only be Christians who are contributing to science. And this is plainly not the case. There is nothing to stop you from believing the findings of science and believing in God. The only problem is accepting the findings of science and accepting a literal reading of the Bible. He founded the evolution protest movement, which I believe was the first anti-evolution, the first creationist movement in, uh, in the world because he was worried and what, it, what he could see the advance of an unscientific theory that was causing people to lose their faith. The evolution protest movement wasn't created to defeat bad science with better science. It was created, in the words of the Victoria Institute where the EPM has its roots, to defend the great truths revealed in Holy Scripture. This should tell you everything you need to know. Yes, it was a number of Christians who developed the science of electromechanic engineering, but they didn't develop the science of electromechanic engineering because they were Christian. There is nothing in the Bible about Faraday's law, the first or second law of thermodynamics, about engineering, or any of that. If theology were a prerequisite to science, firstly, it would be priests and bishops who would be leading scientific discoveries and deciding who gets Nobel Prizes. Second, Jesus would have been out there with his lab coat. And thirdly, no atheist could possibly contribute to science. But this is not what we see. Science owes its, uh, its existence to Christians. No. Science goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. And after the ancient Greeks, the Chinese. And after the Chinese, the Muslims. And ironically, it was the Muslims who were advancing science at the very time that narrow-minded Christians in medieval Europe were persecuting the scientists of the day. Galileo, anyone? Then, after the Muslims, a number of people who grew up in a society where you were expected to be Christian and a Christian of the correct theology did some things that helped build upon the body of knowledge that is science which has since been built upon by Muslims, Jews, atheists, and others. But don't go saying that science owes its existence to Christians. That is plainly wrong. Not only is it wrong, it's ignorant. And of course, in, our, in, the, in the UK, uh, biblical literacy and scientific progress went hand in hand. It was the Puritan movement who were... Uh, Bishop Usher, of course, was a leading theological scholar, the Archbishop of Armagh, who set the famous 4004 uh, um, date in our Bibles, just working from his authorised version alone. He came up with the date, which, we, which I would thoroughly uh, agree with. Giving props and recognition to Bishop Usher as a great man of knowledge is a great way to display your ignorance, which is a very bad look for a professor. 
he was a Bible-believing Christian, and the Puritan church to a man accepted the biblical timeline. It was the Puritan church that grew fastest in, uh, in the uh, 16th, 17th, and uh, up to the 18th century. The Puritan movement grew the fastest by persecuting those who disagreed with it and by executing people. In fact, the Puritans were professed enemies of toleration. Science itself grew out of a Christian worldview. And therefore, if we teach our children and our young people the, the basics of the Bible and the, the truth as it is in Jesus and the truth of Genesis, we once again make tremendous progress in every field. We do need a new reformation whereby the Bible is put supreme. And in fact, our science is set by the boundary conditions which are in the biblical uh, text. Why do you want to limit science? So you can shut your ears to dissenting opinions, just like the Puritans did? So you can persecute people, just like the Puritans did? So you can live in your 16th century fantasy, just like the Puritans did? No. We want to remove the boundary conditions of the biblical texts so we are free to go where the evidence leads. You see, science doesn't answer, give all the answers. Why? Because it doesn't ask all the questions. No, but no one who isn't ignorant says that science is infallible. If science were infallible, no one would be researching anymore because we don't need to find any more answers. But science is the highest possible form of knowledge because it is based on a foundation of proving to the highest level possible the claims being made. And even then, once a claim has been established, it is continually challenged. In religion, if you challenge something with logic and reason, you get excommunicated. Just ask Michael Behe's son. Normally science will ask how or what, but often questions of purpose uh, and destiny, certainly, are excluded from the scientific worldview. So you might go home one night and find a lovely cake on the table. Science can tell you what it's made. It might be able to say what the temperature was that the, uh, the, recipe, the, the ingredients were put together, but it couldn't tell you why did mum make the cake. You could resort to forensic psychiatry, which itself is another science. But of course, God has been there, done that, before ever uh, we thought about these things. Let me show you an electron micrograph of the world's smallest motor. You can't see it by eye. You need an electron microscope to see it. And the world's smallest motor is what's called ATP synthase and that is the motor that is in all of your cells and not just your cells the cells of every living thing atp synthase is not a motor it acts like one but it isn't atp synthase is an enzyme that behaves like what we humans would call a motor it's like calling snake venom motor oil sure Snake venom is a fluid, it is somewhat opaque, and if you drink it, you will become sick. But because two things share similar properties, does not make them the same thing. There is no engineering in ATP synthase. It is entirely natural, unless you're a pantheist. By saying God made ATP synthase, and then saying that ATP synthase is in every cell of every living creature, then either God sat down and made the ATP synthase of everything everywhere. You're then saying that God engineered every cell of everything. If so, why do we not detect God when he does this creation over and over and over and over again for the billions of cells, for the billions of animals around? And this is why natural explanations work infinitely better than theistic-based ones. Also, ATP synthase is found in the cancer cells that kill thousands each year. In the cells of the German shepherds that mold children to death. And in the arms of the violent people who sexually assault their partners. 
did God make those motors as well? Or just the ones in the bodies of those who love him? If so, this is ignorance writ large. We've had that science has got the all the answers. Well, we've seen science doesn't ask all the questions, but actually science has got no answer. There's no naturalistic explanation out there for how ATP synthase functions. This is hilariously ignorant. One only needs to look up the Wikipedia page to find out the function and the evolutionary origin. In fact, Cambridge University Press in 1986 published Molecular Evolution of Life. And on page 263, guess what topic is covered? ATP synthase. So even back in the 1980s, we already had a working idea of how ATP synthase came about. So does science have all the answers? Darwin's origin of the species proposed natural selection as a generator of new species. We saw in the previous talk how that that was inadequate and Darwin knew nothing of this. He did say if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. But I can find no such case. But of course, ATP is such a case. There's no conceptual way. Yes, Darwin did say that. And ATP synthase is not such a case. It has been demonstrated that ATP synthase came from previous existing structures. Plenty of literature is out there explaining the evolutionary mechanism of the creation of ATP synthase. And of course, <clears throat> ATP is designed. That's the best explanation. Um, there's objective indicators of design. There's specified complexity. What do I mean by that? Simply that for ATP to exist at all, it must have followed some design path of instructions to be there uh, at all. In information was needed to put ATP in place. There's order. That's clearly evident. There's interdependence. What use is a rotor without a stator, without a drive shaft, without anything to do? How do you get the um, ions, the hydrogen ions, to power the thing if, of course, it doesn't move? It's all purposely put together. Take away one of those parts and the whole lot fails, and we call that in design irreducible complexity. And the great proponent of that, Michael Behe, in his book Darwin's Black Box, he considers a number of systems at the biochemical molecular level which either all the parts are in place to make them work, take one part away, and of course, nothing works. And Professor Michael Behe should be the last person you quote when it comes to being critical of the theory of evolution. Behe, when he was the star witness in the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial, confessed that he had ignored dozens upon dozens of publications that had answered the questions he claimed evolution couldn't possibly explain. It's fair to say that some atheists have recognized this. Now, this man is Anthony Flew. His uh, testimony is that of being 80 years an atheist. And he wrote a book at, towards the end of his life, there is no God with no crossed out and A written in because it was consideration of the world of the nanoscale that caused Flu to abandon his atheism and to become a theist. He said this, what I think the DNA material has done is to show that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinary, diverse elements together. Professor Anthony Flew, University of Reading in 2004. The world's most famous atheist. For every Anthony Flew, who actually became a deist rather than a theist, there are numerous other people going the other way, as per the clergy project. And also of note, 
is that Flew didn't become a Bible-waving creationist. He became a person who believed in a far-off, impersonal intelligence who doesn't intervene in daily affairs. And just to add one more thing, the New York Times wrote an extensive piece showing that Anthony Flew's conversion isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Here are some select quotes. But is Flew's conversion what it seems to be? Depending on whom you ask, Antony Flew is either a true convert whose lifelong intellectual searchings finally brought him to God or a senescent scholar possibly being exploited by his associates. With the publication of his new book, Flew is once again talking, and this summer I traveled to England to speak with him. But as I discovered, a conversation with him confuses more than it clarifies. With his powers in decline, Antony Flew, a man who devoted his life to rational argument, has become a mere symbol a trophy in a battle fought by people whose agendas he does not fully understand. Flew's conversion, quote-unquote, first reported in late 2004, has cast him into culture wars that he contentedly avoided his whole life. Although Flew still rejects Christianity, saying only that he now believes in an intelligence that explains both its own existence and that of the world, evangelicals are understandably excited. For them, Flew has become very useful, very quickly. In There is a God, Flew quotes extensively from a conversation he had with Leftow, a professor at Oxford. So I asked Flew, do you know Brian Leftow? No, he said. I don't think I do. Do you know the work of the philosopher John Leslie? Leslie is discussed extensively in the book. Flew paused, seeming unsure. I think he is quite good. But he said he did not remember the specifics of Leslie's work. Have you ever run across the philosopher Paul Davis? In his book, Flew calls Paul Davis arguably the most influential contemporary expositor of modern science. I'm afraid this is a spectacle of my not remembering. As he himself conceded, he had not written his book. This is really Roy's doing, he said, before I had even figured out a polite way to ask. He showed it to me, and I said okay, I'm too old for this kind of work. When I asked Vargese, he freely admitted that the book was his idea and that he had done all the original writing for it. But he made the book sound like more of a joint effort, slightly more, anyway. There was stuff he had written before, and some of that was adapted to this, Vargese said. There is stuff he'd written to me in correspondence, and I organized a lot of it. And I had interviews with him. So those three elements went into it. Oh, and I exposed him to certain authors and got his views on them. We pulled it together. And then to make it more reader-friendly, HarperCollins had a more popular author go through it. So even the ghostwriter had a ghostwriter, Bob Hostetler, an evangelical pastor and author from Ohio, rewrote many passages, especially in the section that narrates Flew's childhood. With three authors, how much Flew was left in the book. He went through everything, was happy with everything, Varghese said. Science has all the answers to man's questions. No, it doesn't. It doesn't ask all the questions. But also, it doesn't have answers at the nanoscale to provide the, uh, the way in which these very advanced uh, structures could have been formed. This is blatantly incorrect. Numerous research has been written about the evolution of the components of the cell. Just go look it up. Again, this is blatantly incorrect and betrays a blatant ignorance. Faith is belief in spite of or even perhaps because of the lack of evidence. Richard Dawkins said those words. Is he right? Well, let's have a look at a right view of faith. That's a wrong view, what Dawkins has said. Uh, it may actually apply more to his thinking than to ours, but let's look at a right view of faith. It's a judgment based on reasonable evidence. Taylor deliberately goes from Dawkins using the term faith in a religious sense to faith in the reasonable expectation sense to make it look like Dawkins is talking nonsense. This is a common creationist trick. Switching one accepted definition of a word for another mid-sentence to suit their argument and to make their opponent look silly. We all do that. We just, we look at the evidence before us and we put our trust in pilots and in doctors. They put us to sleep and open us up. That's faith. 
all of this, we all exercise those sort of faith, that sort of faith each day. And in fact, what you're doing is you, when you do that, you trust in the surgeon or you trust in the pilot or you trust in the bus driver, you are putting trust in a reliable person. We put our trust in pilots and doctors because they have the qualifications, the training, as well as the oversight to ensure that their number one responsibility is our safety. It is not a pray and hope thing. You're not putting trust in a reliable person. You're putting trust in someone who has had training, experience, and has the legal responsibility to ensure your safety. The bus driver could be shady as hell as a person, but when he has that uniform on and is in the driver's seat, he is insured and is legally obligated. There are absolutely no gaps for religious faith to squeeze into. The only question is if he's going to do his job professionally. But not only that, God has given us a wealth of testable, examinable evidence that we can be sure that what we believe. Christianity has more evidence for it than anything else. The problem with Professor Taylor's points here is that whenever we have agnostically and neutrally looked at the evidence presented to support the case for a creator deity, and especially the God of the Bible, the claims and the case not even don't, but can't carry the weight of biblical triumphalism that they are meant to support. Not only that, but when faced with the harsh fact that the universe is significantly older than what Professor Taylor's hero, Bishop Usher, worked out it was, that humans are not a special separate creation, that there was no worldwide flood, that there was no mass exodus from Egypt, and many, many more discoveries and indications that run counter to the fundamentalist narrative, creationists, which is what Professor Taylor is, then rely on extravagant and fanciful excuses that are essentially word games, equivocations, blatant ignorance of inconvenient facts, and stonewalling. These are tactics that wouldn't be out of place in politics, which is then why organisations dedicated to the task of scientific misinformation exist. Not because they can make the better case. If they did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But because they're upset that they can't oppress you in the name of their ancient religion. And of course, the basic question, where did everything come from? The atheist has no answer to that question. He'll say the Big Bang, but then you ask him what went bang. I would honestly expect better from a professor. The Big Bang is not the universe coming into existence. The Big Bang is the expansion of the universe from a hot, dense state to a sparse, cool one. Given that time originated at the Big Bang as well, this leads us to the idea that there was never a time when the universe didn't exist. Thus, the universe is practically eternal. Further, the people who study cosmology professionally see no need to attribute the expansion of the universe to a sentient cause. Next is the finely tuned universe. And then of course, if somehow there was a bang from nothing to everything, the universe is so finely tuned, how did all these systems and the natural law which governs the planets, where did those natural laws come from? The laws of nature are descriptive, not prescriptive. There is no cosmic parliament that sets the laws of nature, and there are no cosmic police enforcing the limits and parameters that we call the laws of nature. What we see and call the laws of nature are the consistently observed parameters of how the universe operates. If God did indeed specify everything about the universe, he never dropped any hints that he did or how he did. And don't say that he didn't put anything in the OT because the ancient Israelites wouldn't have been able to understand. 
If God can't communicate concepts to the people who wholeheartedly follow him, then God is not all-powerful. And besides, God had no problem dictating things about the temple, even down to the color of the cloth being used and the number of rings and the number of tables and the size of those tables, and how many animals and of what type and even of what gender to be sacrificed when someone sins. But about the beginning of the universe, he has nothing? I find that strange. But in short, it becomes, we teach God's science, so God can teach us how he created the universe. And in essence, the fine-tuning argument is basically, if things were different, they'd be different, therefore God. How did life begin? The study of abiogenesis is making answers for that. But given that amino acids, one of the building blocks for life, have been found on comets, either God is just shooting out life everywhere, or amino acids are able to form naturally without divine intervention. And of course, wherever we look, we see design. And we've looked today at ATP synthase, but there are dozens and dozens and dozens of things where we can only explain them by considering a purposeful mind behind them, the great mind behind the matter that we see. No, just because you can't grasp that some things are complex behind your comprehension does not give you reason to shoehorn God in. We talk about the evidence of the Bible. It claims to be the word of God 3,600 times plus. Claims to be the word of God. Yet so does the Torah, the Quran, the Book of Mormon. I really wish God would come down and tell us which holy book is really his. Its teachings are unsurpassed. Such as the laws about slavery, the laws about women who have been raped, the laws on how to treat apostates. What the Bible teaches has been surpassed. Wherever the Bible has gone, it has raised men and women. No. <laughs> Firstly, the most Christian nations are among the least developed and most crime-ridden. Brazil, Russia, Latin America, Papua New Guinea. The USA has the highest proportion of its population in prison. The countries that fill the top 10 spots in intentional homicide rate have an over 75% affiliation with Christianity, sometimes up to 96%. So by these statistics, if the Bible is raising men and women up, it seems to be raising them up for a life of crime, poverty, and danger. But let me guess, they aren't true Christians, right? It has never been proven wrong. Let's not let the atheist It's never been proven wrong. It's always been proven correct. The Bible has never been proven wrong. If you ignore all the evidence and then claim that science is corrupt, history is corrupt, and are willing to accept logical fallacies and pseudoscience, then yes, the Bible has never been proven wrong. Get away with this idea that it's full of inconsistencies. Just ask them to name one. Just one. Just one fact. Not a theory, just one fact. Easy. David's census. Was it the Lord who incited David, or was it Satan? Did Noah take only two pairs of every animal, or seven pairs of some animals? Did Jesus clear the temple at the beginning of his ministry, or at the end? Did the fig tree Jesus wither die straight away in front of the disciples, or did they go to the temple first? Did Jesus ride a donkey, or both a colt and a donkey? Just one fact. Starlight from 13.7 billion light years away? The phylogenetic tree of life? Flesh-eating bacteria? And of course, it has predictive prophecy fulfilled in detail. Let me give you one example. We read in Psalm 22. They pierced my hands and my feet. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But even here, Professor Taylor has engaged in a quote mine. Now, this is by far not unique in modern fundamentalism, 
And he is correct that Psalm 22 says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. But have you noticed what he left out? In the very same verse, right before it says, they have pierced my hands and my feet, it also says, dogs surround me and a pack of villains encircles me. And then in the next verse, it says, rescue my life from dogs and lions and wild ox. If Psalm 22 was about Jesus, someone forgot to add lions and dogs and oxen to the crucifixion scene to make the prophecy line up. Psalm 22 also says, I am a worm and not a man, in verse 6. So, to make this verse into a prophecy, you have to remove it from its original context, a lament about being surrounded by enemies and then rescued, as per the last 10 verses of Psalm 22, and then highlight only the verses that do line up with the crucifixion narrative, and then exclaim that it was about Jesus all along. Written approximately 1000 BC, 300 years before crucifixion was invented and fulfilled in graphic detail when Jesus was crucified on the cross. How can the atheist explain that? Easy. Psalm 22 was never a prophecy. And then there is Christ himself, the central figure of human history, dividing time as we measure it in the Western world into two parts. This was retroactively fitted by a monk hundreds of years after the fact. It's not like Jesus came along and then suddenly they made a brand new calendar to celebrate his birth. But Taylor also forgets that the Jews have their own calendar, the Muslims have their own calendar, the Zoroastrians have their own calendar, the Chinese have their own calendar. So it is arrogant for Taylor to assume that because the West uses a calendar system created by a monk and enforced by the Catholic Pope Gregory XIII, that human history revolves around Jesus. There's not one or two or three, but four eyewitness accounts of his life. They are not eyewitness accounts. None of them claim to be. The closest is Luke, who claims he bothered to research. They were written in languages no one in the story spoke. They employ heavy use of mythology and Greek mythological tropes. And they get things wrong. Taylor is also looking past the synoptic problem. At least three of the Gospels are rewrites and almost all use the same Greek reading of the Hebrew text. What are the facts of the case? No one serious, no serious scholar would deny that Christ lived. This assumption is being challenged, most prolific of all being Dr. Richard Carrier. But there are others as well. No serious scholar would deny that Christ died. In the cosmic realm, even first century Christian writings support this. And actually, there is agreement among scholars that the tomb was empty. We don't have his tomb, and the best documentation to make the case gets so many things wrong that it makes this assertion unsupported by the facts. The best you can say is that the story that people believe the tomb was empty has some internal consistency throughout Christian literature. And of course, he was seen alive after his death and resurrection by hundreds of witnesses. So was the Fatima miracle of the sun. But with the 1 Corinthians 15 verse, where Jesus appeared to the 500, we don't have 500 individual reports of one sighting. We have one report of 500 people at an appearance, not a sighting. There's a big difference. He was seen. As reported by documents that weren't eyewitness accounts, that employ heavy use of mythology, and have no independent verification. The Apostle Paul who saw Christ and his life was turned around, he gave us uh, 14 books of the New Testament. This is exactly what someone who has unquestionably swallowed fundamentalist rhetoric would say, not someone who has studied the scholarship on the matter. 
Lord Lyndhurst is an interesting guy, Victorian. He became the Lord Chancellor, which is the highest legal office in the UK, three times in his career. Absolutely brilliant. Of course, the Lord Chancellor, in legal terms, is higher than the Prime Minister. So he's a serious legal mind. He said this, I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. His quote may have been correct for the 1800s, but so was the theory of life as per spontaneous generation. We then refine our body of knowledge with research to come to better supported conclusions. It's interesting that the new atheists, such as Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, will not engage with the evidence for the resurrection. I wonder why. Because their fields of expertise are biology and neuroscience, not ancient history. Frank Morrison was a sceptical journalist who was sceptical about the resurrection. He went to the Holy Land to look firsthand at the sites and, and uh, where these things were said to have happened. And the book that he was hoping to write against Christianity refused to be written. He was converted. And the book that he actually wrote was Who Moved the Stone? As he concluded in the fact of the resurrection. So you're saying Christ is real because someone changed their mind? The evidence had changed lives. And throughout history, immoral people like Augustine, uh, famous prison reformers like Elizabeth Fry, who uh, watched the transformation in the 19th century prisons as she went in and read the Bible to the prisoners. One of my favorites, John Newton, used to sail from Liverpool, a slave trader who trusted Christ and went on to see the abolition of the slave trade uh, in his day. Changed lives happens in every religion, not just Christianity. But it is interesting how all the good and moral people make his list, and never people like Hitler, the child-raping Catholic priests, Dennis Rader the BTK killer, the Westboro Baptist Church, the Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Movement, etc. Our questions to the atheist, and I'm saying this to encourage you to go on the front foot to take the message of the, the gospel to the atheist. Where did everything come from? This is still being investigated by scientists, but everything we see comes as a result of pre-existing material and natural processes. How did a fine-tuned system like ATP arrive by chance? Evolutionary mechanics. How did life spontaneously arise from dead matter? It wasn't spontaneous. It was the result of slow, gradual progressions that are still being studied. Where did my mind come from, not my brain? Your brain. If we shut your brain off, your mind shuts off as well. And how do you explain the Bible, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Lots of mythology.